Welcome to an episode of Explain Blockchain. This podcast is about blockchain technologies and its latest developments. My name is Peter and let's roll the intro. Alright everyone, and welcome to another episode of Explain Blockchain. My name is Peter, and first of all I would like to apologize for the delay of this episode. I recently started with my master thesis and working full-time, and everything took a little bit more time to adjust than I expected. But from now on I will try to push out new episodes more regularly again, but you can always follow me on Twitter with the handle ExplainChain and get notified about new episodes. But for now, let's get into the episode. It is about privacy on the blockchain. Now, privacy on the blockchain is important for two reasons. The first one obviously being privacy for itself. If you make payments with Bitcoin, every payment will be registered on the Bitcoin blockchain and is visible to everybody. So once somebody can link an address to your name, he or she can see every single transaction you're making or you're receiving. So they will see whether you get your rent, for example, with Bitcoin, whether you pay your rent with Bitcoin, what your salary is, whether you have family living abroad to which you send money regularly, all these kind of things that you would rather like somebody else not to have knowledge about. And the second point is privacy is also important for money fungibility. That means that the money you are using, the Bitcoin you are using, doesn't have any history to it. So if you take a dollar note, for example, you don't know who owned that dollar note before you. Maybe some shady trades were done with it. Maybe it was drug money. Maybe it was stolen. All these kind of things you don't know if you only hold the bill in your hand. And this enables you to freely spend it on anything you want. For example, you can go to a shop and they will happily accept your bill. But if they would know that this money is actually stolen and might have to be returned to their rightful owner at one point in time, they might not accept it. So for this, fungibility of money is important. And with Bitcoin, privacy is the main driver for fungibility. Because if you cannot link the Bitcoins that you're receiving or sending to the history, so if you don't know whether it's stolen Bitcoin or whether drugs were bought with it, these kind of things, then you can also just freely spend it on anything you want. And any merchant, anybody will accept your Bitcoin freely. So the state of the art in Bitcoin at the moment is that you simply create a new address for every payment. So if you want to pay somebody, you send funds to their address and then take the change, so the money you have over, the Bitcoin you have left, and send those Bitcoins to a new address that cannot be linked to your previous address. And with that, somebody from the outside cannot say which of the addresses you pay to is yours. So they cannot connect one of these new addresses to you. Now, there are a couple of scenarios where it is actually possible to link the address back to you. Obviously, one of the scenarios is if you state your address publicly online. If you say this address belongs to me, then it's obviously linked. Otherwise, also if you take two addresses and make a single payment to another address. So if you take two of your addresses and make a payment to, for example, a merchant, then somebody else will know that you had the keys of these two addresses and they can link them together and also link together the history so they also know maybe where your bitcoins come from and from then on they also know that if you make a payment from either of these addresses that is still you who are paying these bitcoins so that money belongs to you 
And the last scenario could be if you have a large amount of money, let's say one Bitcoin or something, and you make smaller payments with that, like paying a coffee every now and then, then somebody from the outside can see that you're still holding on to this bigger chunk of money and you're paying from that smaller payments out. So they can track the larger chunk of money and they know that that's always connected to you. Now, the privacy on the Bitcoin blockchain is reasonable, but it is not perfect. And there are a couple of projects that try to improve on this. In this episode, I will go through some of them and explain them. I will not explain them in a very detailed level because a lot of math is involved, but I will explain it in abstract terms so that you know what's actually happening. I will link to any details in the show notes. So if you really want to dive into the details, just look up the links that I'm giving you and read up on them yourself. The first technology I would like to talk about is CoinJoin. CoinJoin tries to give you privacy with payments by bringing together a bunch of users that all pay the same amount. And each user can specify to which their amount should go, to which output address. But from the outside, you just see one transaction that has a couple of outputs of the same amount and also a couple of inputs of the same amount. So you cannot link the inputs to the outputs because everything is the same amount. So if I pay in one Bitcoin and five other people are paying in one Bitcoin each, then on the other side, you just have one Bitcoin going to each output address. So you don't know where my one single Bitcoin goes to which output address. And this is called N anonymity because my payment can go to any of these N outputs. So the more outputs there are, the larger the N, the bigger is my privacy because the harder it is to see or to guess to which output my money went. So how does it work? First of all, let's say N users have to come together and agree on an amount that they all want to send. So they all have to send the same amount, for example, one Bitcoin. Then each user provides a UTXO, an unspent output, covering the amount and also gives an output address. Then all UTXOs and output addresses are combined into a single transaction and each user has to sign the transaction. So it's an N of N multi-signature transaction. Once every user has signed the transaction, then the transaction is broadcasted to the blockchain and is registered there. Now, the privacy is improved as I said because you cannot link the input to the output. So you don't know to which output address my money went. However, obviously, there are a couple of problems with this. First of all is that every single user has to say, send the same amount. But if I would like to send, let's say, one and a half Bitcoin and you only want to send half a Bitcoin, this could not work. We could not create a coin join transaction for that because every tr amount has to be the same. Otherwise, if I would pay 1.5 Bitcoin, you would only pay half a Bitcoin and we also have two outputs of half a Bitcoin and 1.5 Bitcoin, then it's very easy to link my input amount to the output amount. So you know exactly to which address I paid. This is why every amount has to be the same. There needs to be a market for us to find other users that want to send the same amount. But these markets are mostly centralized on a single server that then again know which, the, which users were combined into a single transaction, what their amount was, what their output addresses was. So the single authority there has logs of every single transaction. So if that authority decides to broadcast that information or to give that information to an attacker, that attacker knows, knows exactly to which addresses I made payments. Another practical problem is that these markets at the moment have very low liquidity. So if I would like to send, for example, one Bitcoin, there might not be enough other users that want to send one Bitcoin as well. 
And there's a technology that tries to overcome those issues, which is called the mixer. The mixer is a central authority as well that takes your payments. So you actually have to make a payment to the mixer and then uses other people's payments to pay the output address that you specified. So let's say that I want to pay one Bitcoin to Alice and Bob also wants to send one Bitcoin to Charlie, for example. So in this scenario, I would pay one Bitcoin to the mixer. So the one Bitcoin is then fully under the control of the mixer. And Bob would do the same, also one Bitcoin to the mixer. The mixer then would use Bob's payment to pay Alice and my payment to pay Charlie. So crossover. This way, I'm paying Alice, but not with my funds, but with Bob's funds. And by mixing this together, by using more of these users, you can also not again link the input payment, so my payment, to the output payment, so the payment to Alice, for example, which gives me privacy in paying as well. As you might already have thought, there's a problem with the central authorities, with the mixer, because first of all, it's even worse than with the CoinJoin protocol, because the mixer has full control over the payments. So once I pay my money to the mixer, it is gone for me, the mixer might just run away with it, and I will lose my funds. Again, the mixer also might just keep locks on um, whom I'm paying with who, with how much and use the data, maybe resell the data to people who want to know whom I'm paying. And one technology that tries to overcome this issue of trusting the central authority as a mixer is called Tumblebit. Now, Tumblebit is a rather complicated procedure, I must say. So I will only explain it in abstract terms. But I, again, I will link to the presentation of the founders or the researchers behind Tumblebit. So if you are really interested into the details, just go to the links and read up on that. So first of all, Tumblebit uses payment channels, as you might know from Lightning. If you don't know what a payment channel is, I would recommend that you go back to my scalability episode where I discuss payment channels. So Tumblebit uses payment channels and hash time lock contracts, basically to enable making a commitment for a payment so that you actually make a payment, but you as a sender have still the assurance that you might get back your funds if they're not sent to the person I want to pay with it. And the procedure of Tumblebit goes as follows. So let's say that Alice wants to pay Bob via Tumblebit. First of all, the output payment, the output transaction to Bob is generated or is created. And the Tumblr encrypts this payment signature with a key K. And again, this key K is encrypted with the Tumblr's public key. The Tumblr sends both this encrypted signature and the encrypted K to Bob, who first of all blinds these values that means basically that he's encrypting these values again so that the blinded versions cannot be linked back to the initial versions. So Bob could even send back these values to the Tumblr and the Tumblr wouldn't know that the blinded versions are connected to the unblinded or original versions or values. So know that Bob blinded the key K, the encrypted key K. He sends the blinded version of the encrypted key K to Alice. What Alice now does is she actually pays Tumblebit. She pays the amount she wants to send to Bob, maybe plus some fees for the Tumblr. And the Tumblr decrypts the encrypted key K. So basically the Tumblr gives back to Alice the key K, which is necessary to get the payment signature, but in a blinded version. So it's still a different version from the original because Bob blinded it. 
That's why the tumbler doesn't know that the key K he gives back is the key K he sent to Bob. Now Alice just sends this blinded key K to Bob, who then unblinds it again. So then Bob has the original key K with which he can decrypt the payment signature of the transaction and then eventually also pay or spend the transaction. Just to recap very briefly, because I realize it is quite complicated. Again, there are links in the show notes. First of all, the Tumblr creates a payment and gives the parameters that are needed to make this payment or to spend this payment in an encrypted form to Bob. Bob then sends these encrypted values to Alice, who pays money to get the decrypted versions, so the original keys, from the Tumblr. Alice then sends these decrypted keys to Bob, so the original keys to Bob, and Bob can use these keys to make the actual payment. But there are two very important parts here, which is, first of all, that Bob blinds the values in between. So when Alice sends the key that she got from Bob to the Tumblr, the Tumblr doesn't know anymore that the key he receives is the key he gave out to Bob. So there's no link between the payment he made for Bob and the request he gets from Alice. So the Tumblr doesn't know that actually Alice wants to pay Bob because he can't link these two keys. And the second important point is that the Tumblr can't hold onto the funds that Alice pays him because the payment of Alex to the Tumblr is under the condition that the Tumblr sends back the key. Otherwise, the Tumblr also can't spend the payment on the payment channel. So Alice gets the key 100% and before Alice actually pays the Tumblr, the Tumblr already created a transaction and gave it to Bob. So in this case, once Alice receives the key, she can immediately send it to Bob or also spend the transaction herself. So no funds can be embezzled by the Tumblr and also the Tumblr cannot connect the payment to Bob to the initial payment by Alice. So there's no link between these. So with Tumblebit, you would have again a central authority, a central server that organizes and manages all these payments, but the server cannot link any outgoing transactions to any incoming transactions. So there is the privacy is ensured. And then also the Tumblr cannot hold onto the funds or embezzle the funds because everything is secured by hashed time block contracts. So when the Tumblr doesn't forward the money to Bob, Alice just gets back her funds after a certain amount of time. So this was Tumblebit, but there are more technologies that try to solve privacy or to give privacy on the blockchain without having a central authority. And I will just mention two, which are the confidential transactions and the Schnorr signature aggregation. First of all, about the confidential transaction. The confidential transactions, or I would just call them CTs, try not to break the link between the input and the output, like Tumblebit, for example, that you cannot link any input payments to any output payments. But instead, they only try to disguise the amounts that you're actually paying. So still one might know that you are paying a certain other person, but nobody knows how much you're actually paying that person. CTs are also very complicated, I must say, but in general they use the Peterson commitment to blind the amounts. Now the Peterson commitment is simply a commitment to a certain input value that you can give to others 
while still hiding the actual amount. So for example, if you encrypt a number and give that encrypted piece to somebody else, then you cannot change that input value anymore because the other person in one point of time wants to decrypt that value and will check whether the value that you committed to is actually the value that the person got out of the decryption. So you make a commitment to a certain value without revealing the value. And confidential transactions work as follows. First of all, you blind the input and the output amounts. So with the Peterson commitment, you, for example, hash the amounts together with a random blinding factor, which is just a random number. But CTs have a very certain property that's very important here, which is if you add up the blinded amounts or the blinded values, they just add up as the unblinded values. So if I have two values, three and five, I add them together, it's eight. If I now take the blinded versions, the blinded values of three and five, and I add those together, I would get the blinded value of the result eight. So this way I can, for example, add up all the input values and then subtract from that the output values and see whether the result is zero. So with this, you can easily check whether a confidentially transacted transaction has the same amount of inputs as outputs. So you can check that a transaction doesn't create any Bitcoins out of thin air, which is very important for verification of transactions. So just to sum it up, with confidential transactions, you create a transaction just as you would normally do. So you have some unspent transaction outputs, you put them together into the input field, and then you specify some output fields where you actually make the payment. So you say this amount should go to that person, and this amount I want to be sent back to my own or a new address. With this normal transaction, you could broadcast it, and a mining node would pick it up, or a full node would pick it up, and just verify whether the input amounts are equal to the output amounts. And if this is the case, then it's a very valid transaction because you don't create any Bitcoins out of thin air. This is the most important part. With confidential transactions, you can still verify transactions in the same way. So you just add up the inputs uh, minus the outputs and you see whether it's zero. But the actual amounts that you are putting in and that you are sending out are blinded. So nobody really knows what the actual amounts were. I explained this in very abstract terms because it is actually much more complex than this. Confidential transactions use uh, different cryptography mechanisms or methods like the Shoemaker's binary decomposition, ring signatures, and even an own created ring signature, which is called the Burrow-Mean ring signature. Again, I linked to a very good article in the show notes, which explains this in a lot of detail. So if you're interested in the cryptographic details behind this, just read this article. So the advantages of confidential transactions are unconditional privacy. So nobody even with the best computer ever can break the privacy because nobody can for certain say which amounts you paid and paid in and paid out again. Because even if somebody could break the encryption or decryption algorithm that you use because you have a random factor with which you encrypt an amount, Nobody can know for certain which was the amount and what was the blinding factor. So for example, if I blind or if I encrypt uh, the value 3 and I have a random value of 5, so in general the 
value would be 8, then you can divide 8 in a certain way. So you could just say the amount would be 1 and the random factor was 7, or the amount was 6 and the random amount was 2. So even if you can decrypt my blinding, my encryption, you still don't know for certain how much I actually paid, so what was the amount and what was the random factor with it. So this is called unconditional privacy. Even with the best computers, you cannot break this privacy. However, the disadvantages of confidential transactions is that transactions which have these blinded input and output values are three times bigger than a normal transaction, which is not too much, but you cannot scale it to, for example, the whole Bitcoin blockchain. And the other problem is that you would have 15 to 20 times higher transaction volumes because you have to send around a lot of data. Once you verified the transaction, you can throw away a lot of the data, but you first have to transfer it. And you would also have 30 to 60 times higher validation costs. So it takes you way longer to validate and verify that a transaction is valid than it would with a normal transaction where you just have to sum up the values in the input fields and the output fields and see whether these are equal. So for confidential transactions, they are promising, but they have some disadvantages, which is, for example, that the size is much bigger, the trading, the transaction volume is much higher, and the validation cost is also much higher. Also, the protocol, I mean, the idea is already worked out, but an actual implementation is still missing. Another technology that tries to bring privacy to the Bitcoin blockchain without introducing a central authority again is the Schnorr Signature aggregation algorithm. And the hope here is that the Schnorr signatures could eventually replace elliptic curve signatures that we have at the moment. Schnorr signatures have a very certain, very interesting property to them, which means that you can aggregate as many signatures as you want into a single fixed sized signature. So the Schnorr signature aggregation scheme introduces privacy to the Bitcoin blockchain by aggregating all the signatures into a single fixed sized signature. And this means that your signature of an unspent transaction output cannot be linked to the actual output because your signature will be aggregated with all the other signatures. So any of the other people might have signed your unspent transaction output. And then also on the other side with the locking scripts for the outputs, which are also aggregated, one cannot say which output is actually linked to which address. From the outside, nobody knows which signature that is aggregated into one single signature belongs to either input or output. Previously, when you had a multi-signature transaction, so that means that you and your friends, you all hold a key to make a certain transactions. For example, you and other business owners want to make a transaction from your business account. In order to make this transaction, every single business owner has to sign the transaction. And that signature also has to go into the transaction. So the more business owner you have, the more signatures you must have. And then also the larger the transaction is. And this might be a problem because you can inflate the size of a transaction a lot. And that would also slow down uh, the Bitcoin blockchain and also just increase the size of the Bitcoin blockchain a lot. So, for example, to, for 50 or 50 multi-signature transaction, you have to have 50 different signatures, each of them being a certain amount of bytes long and just increasing the size of the transaction. Now, with Schnorr signatures, you could just aggregate or combine all these signatures, these 50 signatures, into one single fixed-sized signature. So it doesn't matter whether you have one person signing a transaction or 50, still you have the same size signature. And with Schnorr signatures, you can still verify all the rules that are part of the consensus protocol, which is, for example, that the right account signed the transaction, 
that if you have, for example, a two out of five multi-signature, that also two out of five or more signed that transaction. So all these rules that you would normally check with the signatures from the elliptic curve signature scheme, you can also then verify with the Schnorr signature scheme. However, all the signatures are signature. And this could maybe help to again, scale the Bitcoin blockchain as well. So some researchers think that we can have up to 19% storage savings with Schnorr signatures if you have single signature payments. So normal payments that you pay as an individual to another individual would be 19% smaller on average. And then for multi-signatures, this is where the Schnorr signature scheme really shines because you can just aggregate all these. And on average, we could maybe save 40% of the storage that we would normally use on the Bitcoin blockchain. So the Bitcoin blockchain would increase in size 40% less than it would normally with an encrypted elliptic curve signature scheme. So when you make a transaction and in the output you say which public key can spend this output again, the whole public key has to be saved in the transaction, as well as your signature of your unspent transaction. So when you sign that in order to spend it, also that signature needs to be stored. Now with SegWit, these witness scripts or these scripts to unlock and lock the transaction were separated from the actual transaction and put into a different section, which is called the witness. And by introducing this separation, one can actually also update the signatures that are used to sign and to lock the transaction. Because the witness section holds a variable which simply is the version of this uh, version of SegWit that you're using at the moment. So what the Bitcoin developers could do is develop a new version of transaction verification and just release it as a, a new version of SegWit. So then you would have, for example, version two in the witness field. So then nodes can also see, all right, this is, for example, the new signature scheme and this is the old elliptic curve signature scheme and ver can verify the transactions accordingly. So this way, Schnorr signatures could be introduced into the Bitcoin blockchain, just updating the software, having a soft fork. Um, old, old nodes can still verify the old versions of SegWit or Bitcoin Core. And updated nodes can also verify the new Schnorr signatures with the new version of SegWit. So all this sounds very great, but there are still a couple of problems with Schnorr signatures, which first of all is that the implementations are not standardized yet. So with other cryptographic algorithms like AES and SHA hashing, these kind of things, these protocols are actually rather old. And that means that there are a lot of very standardized implementations of those for every major programming language. So you just can use a library and trust that library to be properly implemented. This is not the case with Schnorr signatures because, as I said, they were patented until uh, recently. And this means that there are not that many open source proven tested and foolproof implementations out there. So this is one of the obstacles the Bitcoin core developers first have to overcome. And then there's a second problem, which is called the cancellation problem. This is pretty easy to explain. Let's say that you and a friend, you want to make a multi-signature transaction. So you and your friend both have to sign the transaction in order to make this transaction. Now, let's say your friend, he is actually a malicious attacker and just wants to cut you out and just spend the transaction however he desires. 
Schnorr's signature for now, let's say, is very simple and it just adds up your signature and the signature of your friend. So just A plus B. And if your friend now wants to cut you out of the whole transaction, your friend could just provide a signature that cancels out your signature. So if your signature is A and your friend's is B, then your friend could just give a signature that is B minus A. So then if you add those together, it would be A plus B minus A. So your A is cancelled out, everything that's left is B. It's only the signature of your friend. And with this signature, your friend can then freely spend this transaction however he or she desires. The cancellation problem can easily be solved by just multiplying every input key, so A and B, with the hash of all signing keys. So we would first add up together A and B, hash those, and then again multiply each individual key with the hash of the sum. This is called delinearization and could then solve the cancellation problem. So to just sum it up, the Schnorr signatures can help by aggregating a lot of signatures and giving a fixed sized output signature. So it doesn't matter how many signatures you have, you always have the same size signatures. And with this, you can also then scale again the Bitcoin blockchain easier. So this is already the end of this podcast. I would just like to sum everything up again. First of all, we talked about CoinJoin, which tried to bring users together that all pay the same amount and then have a fixed set of output transactions also with the same amount so that you cannot link any input amount to any output amount. Then we talked about mixers, which try to do the same, but then with people paying different amounts where you first pay the mixer and then the mixer uses a different person's payment to make the payment for you. So if I want to pay Alice and Bob wants to pay Charlie, I would actually be paying Charlie and Bob would actually be paying Alice. But the problem here was that the mixer has full control over your funds and might also keep logs of whom you actually want to pay. So then a new technology was proposed which is called Tumblebit which tries to do the same as a mixer but then without being able to link any input payments with output payments and also not being able to embezzle any funds because everything is saved by a hashed time locked contract. And a payment channel. Then I quickly talked about schemes that try to introduce privacy to the Bitcoin blockchain without having a central authority. And the first one was confidential transactions, which blinds your input and output values. And then we talked about Schnorr signature aggregation, which aggregates a lot of different signatures into a single signature. Thank you very much for listening to this. If you would like to be notified when I post any new episodes or if you just want to get into contact with me, you can go to Twitter. The handle is explainchain for this podcast or go to my personal website, which is peterulrichullrich.com. You can just send me an email there or also reach me on my personal Twitter account. Thank you very much for listening. I will see you in the next episode of Explain Blockchain.